Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hey everybody, it's AG, and welcome to Refried Beans, where we play an episode of the Daily Beans podcast from the same week, either one, two, or three years ago, so we can see how far we've come. So please enjoy this episode from days gone by, and note the date in the intro. Refried beans, I like refried beans, that's why I want to try fried beans, because maybe they're just as good and we're, we're wasting time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. Today, FBI, DHS and National Guard leadership testified before a joint Senate committee. Mike Pence has published an op-ed pushing the big lie. South Dakota Republicans have changed the rules last minute, making it nearly impossible to impeach the attorney general that killed a man during a hit and run. The House Oversight Committee has reissued its subpoena to Mazars. Trump's White House doctor, Ronnie Jackson, made sexual comments, drank booze and took Ambien at work. And I'll be speaking with the author of American Compromise. Craig Unger. I'm A.G. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hello, Dana. Happy Thursday. So happy it's Thursday. Happy Thursday. Yes, happy Thursday to you. We're getting through another week. March is, I mean, so far we've got, oh, you know, almost a week in and all of us are still doing okay. So ah. just hoping for the best. I'm telling you, it's going to go by fast. Oh, it really is. So just a, a little curious 
sort of side note, you remember the whole Nazi stage symbol for CPAC? Oh, of course. For sure. How we had the exclusive on that. And we interviewed the guy who first saw it Monday and we tweeted it out. And then there was all this back and forth. And then people were like, it was an accident. And then finally, the, you know, Hyatt put out a statement saying, oh, we don't like that. And CPAC was like, fuck you guys. We yeah. didn't do this. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> and Matt Schlapp was like just posting pictures of him sunning himself. And then, of course, uh, uh, Foundry, Design Foundry, who who designed the stage, put out a statement Tuesday night saying, hey, we did this. It was an accident. We aren't Nazis. Um, thank you. Right. Well, we found out just a minute ago uh, through Mediate, they have this exclusive reporting that sources have told them that CPAC ACU lawyer, Safavian, I believe his name is, he was pardoned by Trump, by the way, uh, in his last pardon fiesta that happened before he left office. Uh, he threatened uh, design Foundry saying you better put out a statement no later than Tuesday saying that you copying to the stage design. If you do not, we will put out a statement saying that it was you. And wow, we are threatening legal action against you if you don't do this. Wow, that seems like a, a lawsuit both ways is about to uh, it, transpire. There's a possibility there. How can they even do that? Mm -hmm. We're forcing you to put out a statement. If not, we're going to say you did it. Mm hmm. That's why I never take back what I say. <laughs> what I say, because at first I was like, everybody seems to be upset. Even, even a lot of uh, you know left wing blue check marks were like, "Nice job, you totally like buried this poor stage company who didn't mean to do it. Good job, conspiracy theorists." Uh, and now we're finding out that they were threatened. So now the only people left to apologize and acknowledge anything are CPAC. So well, there we'll see what it. happens from there. Uh, also, a little bit later in the show, I'm going to be talking to Craig Unger. He wrote House of Putin, House of Trump, House of Putin. And uh, his new book, American Compromise, is out. And we're going to go over the timeline of how Donald became a Russian asset going back to the 70s. So crazy. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, it's Thursday, which means Dana and I will be having our after party on stereo at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern. That's for the public. Anyone can join. You can ask us anything. You can sing songs to us. We'll have adult beverages if that's what you're into. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll we can. It's fun. I, I absolutely love it. It's, a best, it's one of the best parts of my week. I love it. So everyone that's been joining, you've been amazing. And it's just as much for AG and... Uh, and, and me as it is for you. So we're going to have a good time. Yes. And then, of course, Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific is our happy hour Zoom meeting for patrons. All right. Um, Stereo is free for everybody. The whole public can come and, and enjoy it. All right. We have a lot of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Lead story. Commanding General of the National Guard, General William Walker, among others, testified before a Joint Senate committee today about the insurrection response. And he confirmed a few things we've all been thinking for weeks. Probably the most damning testimony from General Walker is that General Pyatt and General Flynn, that's Michael Flynn's brother, both recommended against the deployment of the National Guard based on optics. They are not in the chain of command. I don't know what they were doing there, why they were on the call making recommendations. I don't get why they were there at all, but they recommended against deployment of the National Guard. It took over three hours to get the National Guard there. Uh, and General Walker was asked about the six levels of approval necessary to deploy the National Guard and whether that's too many steps or too bureaucratic. And Walker said, you know, this is a longstanding process we've had in place for a long time, and I've seen it take seconds to get approval. Wow. 
And he cited, yeah, back in June, remember when uh, Black Lives Matter protesters were, uh, you know, protesting peacefully over the summer all the way through September? Uh, When I asked for National Guard backup then, it went all the way up and back down to me in seconds. I got approval immediately for, for to deploy against those protests. Well, isn't that special? Hmm. Then a guy representing the Pentagon who just skeeves me out. His name is Mr. Celesis or Selassies or Salazar. He actually told senators that the quick reaction force, the QRF, that's an elite force of 40 or so riot troops outfitted to deal with riots, was only approved that day for traffic control. They were only backing up the, the D.C. Metro Police for traffic control. Salazis then blamed the Black Lives Matter protests for the delay in deploying National Guard troops during the insurrection and that General Pyatt never used the word optics. Actually, what he said is General Pyatt never said anything about optics. And they were like, are you sure he didn't say anything about optics? Then he changed his bullshit testimony to say he never used the word optics. Uh, But he wouldn't say, you know, anything to that effect was shared. Interesting. Walker also testified he had 140 troops ready to go, some on buses at the ready. It would have taken 18 minutes to arrive once the word was given. Those troops waited for hours before he got final approval to deploy them and testified that it would have made a big difference in the outcome of January 6th. He also said the memo from Acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller co-opting sole authority to utilize Guard troops properly by arming them and giving them helmets and shit was highly unusual and was never the case during the Black Lives Matter protests. So we need to get Pyatt Miller and Charles Flynn under oath immediately. We need to Absolutely. get Irving back to clear up his bullshit about Sun's testimony, lies proven by Yogananda Pittman. That's the new chief of the U.S. Capitol Police who who came with phone record evidence uh, in her testimony. Because the ladies always bring receipts. <laughs> Dude, she's such a badass. And I love her name. I love the name Yogananda. Now, right? the Department of Justice has filed a motion to seal... Uh, nine cases and asked the D.C. District Court to seal nine videos tied to the January 6th insurrection, citing an ongoing covert grand jury investigation in which the videos play a significant role. Uh, And interestingly, uh, they also asked to seal a 50-minute video transcript taken by a guy named Munchal. By the way, Munchal is the zip-tie guy. So... Very, very interesting. This isn't uh, the government hiding shit from you. This is the government protecting ongoing investigations into bigger fish, in my personal opinion. 100% agree with you. And Mike Pence has published an op-ed pushing the big lie, even after it's been debunked a zillion times. The primary focus of his op-ed appears to be slamming H.R. 1, a bill that is now being debated in the House right now, tonight. Uh, First, Pence claims that H.R. 1 would ban voter ID requirements nationwide. That is a lie. What H.R. 1 says is it would allow those without an ID to sign a sworn affidavit attesting to their identity when they show up to vote. Pence also claimed anyone listed in a government database would have to be added to the rolls, saying the bill would force states to adopt automatic voter registration for any individual listed in a state and federal government database, such as the DMV, welfare offices, and millions of undocumented immigrants. Also a lie. That's not true. That is a lie. The bill claims... The bill claims... Um, uh, the bill does not allow for undocumented immigrants to vote. He's just making shit up. Pence also claims in his op-ed that H.R. 1 would require states to count every mail-in ballot, every mail-in ballot up to 10 days after the election day. That's a lie. It would require states to count ballots postmarked on or before election day that arrive up to 10 days after election day. But most of all, Pence claims there was massive election irregularities in 2020, and that is simply not true. Even Barr says that's not true. So the question then becomes, why is Pence caving here after Trump 
called for his assassination. I think that there's a couple of things. I mean, either Pence is setting up to run for public office um, in some way, or there's still blackmail on him. Like, they've got stuff hanging over his head where they're like, get out there and make this op-ed. Or, you know, this little call gets leaked or this, you know, email gets yeah. released. There doesn't make sense any other any other way. He's done. And I don't even know that it's running in for the future office because he didn't even show up on the straw poll at right. CPAC. Well... That doesn't mean that doesn't mean someone who's not on the straw poll wouldn't run for office again. I don't know what Mike Pence's deal is. I don't know why he just doesn't go back to radio. I mean, he started as a radio host. Go back to radio. Mm-hmm. There's an opening I hear um, on mm-hmm. conservative radio, <laughs> on conservative talk oh. radio. Um, I don't know who it is, but uh, just a rumor. So this article is interesting. South Dakota's top law enforcement officer isn't likely to be impeached by the South Dakota House of Representatives after all. Now, we spoke about this story previously on the podcast. This was the uh, hit and run, if you, I mean, that's an interesting name for it, but hit and run accident. So after more than a week of backroom conversations among GOP leadership in the House, its most powerful standing committee gutted a resolution filed in the state legislature last week that had called for the impeachment of the Attorney General Jason Roundsburg. Um, we, we, I just learned how to pronounce that correctly because it's not at all what it looks like. Um, so that's just another <laughs> lesson for us. I'm glad the listeners know what they're talking about. And now we have, we all uh, remember the story. He's the one who actually killed a pedestrian in Hyde County nearly six months ago. Remember yeah, where the his guy's eyeglasses? glasses were? Yeah. yeah found Ooh. in the front seat. That one. Creepy. <laughs> Instead, the House State Affairs Committee passed a watered down version of the resolution stating that the le- legislature, quote, may... Take up impeachment proceedings during a special session of the legislature after a trio of misdemeanor criminal charges. Misdemeanor criminal charges facing the attorney general are resolved. But a supermajority of lawmakers would need to agree to convene a special session to even consider impeaching uh, Roundsburg, making the likelihood of that very slim to ever happen. So this guy may literally... Get away with murder. I know, like, under definition, it's not murder, but it is vehicular homicide and, and leaving that the scene of an accident. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I just, it, it the, the two systems of justice in our country are infuriating this bullshit tenure that a lot of legislatures, legislators have, um, is, is, it, it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. Yeah. Saying, yeah, you can go ahead and impeach him, but you're going to need two thirds supermajority. Uh, you're going to need a supermajority to agree to convene the special session to impeach him to even start it. Yeah. And they aren't going to get it. They can't get it. Uh, also, defense uh, Department of Defense Inspector General has issued a very bad report of Ronnie Jackson. Remember the candy man? I do. Um, yeah. He, uh, Trump weighs 239. He's six foot three. He's the best, healthiest, coolest dude ever. That Ronnie Jackson. He's in better shape than I am. Mm, actually, after reading this Inspector General report, that might be true. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the house physician, the house physician, according to the report, made sexual and denigrating comments about a female subordinate, violated the policy for drinking booze while on a presidential trip and took prescription strength sleeping medication that prompted concerns from his colleagues about his ability to provide care. The findings outlined in the report, which was obtained by CNN prior to its release, uh, stem from a years-long, years-long investigation from the Inspector General into Jackson, who currently represents Texas in the House of Representatives and sits on the Ar- House Armed Services Co- Subcommittee overseeing military personnel. Um, 
he that was launched in 2018. This this inspector general's uh, investigation and it examines allegations that date back to his time serving during the Obama and Trump administrations. Members of Congress were briefed on the IG report findings Tuesday. Uh, Jackson claimed the report was politically motivated uh, in a statement to CNN Tuesday, saying the inspector general resurrected old allegations because he refused to turn my back on Trump, who was a vocal supporter of his 2020 congressional bid. He also told CNN he rejects any allegation I consumed alcohol while on duty. After interviewing 78 witnesses and review, aren't you always 24 seven on duty if you're the fucking White House physician? I'm sorry. You would think so. Uh, yep. Nope. Sorry. I'm drunk. It's after five. You need a ventilator? Too bad. Especially for a, a president who's up at three o'clock in the morning tweeting. I, I don't think you get to take time off when the guy who might die is still awake. Yes. Now, get this. After they interviewed 78 witnesses. And reviewing a host of White House documents, investigators concluded that Jackson, who achieved the rank of rear admiral, failed to treat his subordinates with dignity and respect, engaged in inappropriate conduct involving the use of alcohol during two incidents, and used sleeping pills during an overseas trip that raised concerns. Uh, Yeah. The report also notes that the investigation into Jackson was limited in scope and unproductive, as White House counsel under Trump insisted on being present at all interviews. Mm -hmm. So this really scathing report is the whitewashed one. Quote, we determined that political chilling effect of their presence would prevent us from receiving accurate testimony, the report states. According to Fieldwork, stopped for about 10 months between October uh, 2018 and August 2019 as the Department of Defense Inspector General and White House Counsel determined whether the White House would invoke executive privilege, which they ultimately did not do. Still, the conclusions about his conduct are striking. Allegations about his explosive temper creating a hostile work environment, both during the Obama and Trump administrations, as an overwhelming majority of witnesses, 56 of them who worked with Jackson from 2012 to 2018, told us they personally experienced, saw or heard about him yelling, screaming, cursing or belittling subordinates. That's a quote from the report. Witnesses also alleged Jackson made comments about female medical subordinates, breasts and ass during a political presidential trip to Asia in April 2014. Witness one, quote, a medical subordinate told us that during the Asia trip before arriving in Manila, Jackson told him a female medical subordinate, witness two, who was also on the trip, had great tits and what a nice ass. And Jackson also told Manila witness one he would like to see more of her tattoos, the report says. Two years later, in Argentina, two witnesses told the IG they saw Jackson drinking a beer while he was serving as the physician to the president and in charge of providing medical care for a presidential trip, despite regulations prohibiting him for 24 hours from the president's arrival until two hours after he left. (laughs) Jackson, the witnesses said, dismissed the regulations as ridiculous. He just didn't like the rules. (laughs) Another witness said Jackson later smelled booze, although she was unsure if he was drunk. One witness identified the report as uh, witness five. She said he did not smell alcohol on Jackson during the trip. So these two allegations of alcohol both occurred, uh, alcohol use both occurred under the Obama administration, but the report details a series of incidents under both Obama and Trump in which he lost his temper cursing at subordinates. Of the 60 witnesses... Uh, only 13 had nice things to say. (laughs) 38 spoke about his unprofessional behavior, intimidation, and poor treatment of subordinates. At least six witnesses, all of whom are medical personnel, told investigators he took Ambien uh, on long flights while on duty for providing medical care for government officials, including the president. The witnesses said they were concerned about the Ambien because it often leaves users drowsy and can impair your mental alertness. Can I can confirm that. Indeed. But the IG report notes there's no specific restriction on the use of Ambien during long flights. It's recommended the White House military office put out guidance 
on the appropriate use of Ambien and similar drugs. My goodness. I mean, this is, listen, this doesn't apply to all men. I'm not, you know, hashtag not all men and hashtag some women. But why is that switch broken? Listen, if I see an attractive human, there's a chance, AG, I may think, wow, that girl or that guy, really nice ass. I just don't say those things out loud to anyone else. It's just my inside voice appreciating another human being another human body in the world, but it's never predatory. I just don't understand how that switch isn't flipped. Uh, drives me crazy. Because, I mean, we are sexual human beings. Just stop making other people feel uncomfortable, for God's sake. Especially right. if you're at work. Seriously. Well, and, and I don't know. Maybe he's on Ambien. He probably doesn't remember half the shit he said, because apparently he was drugged out of his mind for the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. This is another long one, but it's very important. So remember when we said Congress should use budget reconciliation to pass the COVID stimulus plan because it would be easier to negotiate with two Democrats than 10 Republicans? Yeah, the reason I'm laughing is because here's the result of that negotiation. So Senate Republicans and Joe Biden settled a last-minute debate over Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill on Wednesday, choosing to keep federal unemployment benefit payments at 400 per week, but narrow the phase out of the measure's $1,400 stimulus checks. This is really upsetting a lot of people, understandably. The breakthrough comes just hours before debate kicks off on the bill, which Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said could start as soon as Wednesday night. And one Senate Democratic aide said the chamber is now waiting only on official scores from the Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee on Taxation to confirm that the bill doesn't run afoul of the rules of budget reconciliation. Now, that's the process that allows passage of the package with a simple majority. This is very important that we're not breaking the rules here. Uh, The bill's $1,400 payments will now phase out completely at $80,000 per year for individuals and $160,000 for joint filers. The phase-out will start at $75,000 and $150,000, respectively. But the bill would retain that extra $400 weekly unemployment payment through August rather than cut them to $300. That is a good thing, as suggested by, you guessed it, Senator Joe Manchin. So he's just been a schmuck lately on so many different levels. Yeah, he's he's also the one who probably insisted on this uh, tightening of the who gets the $1,400 stimulus checks. And basically what's happening here is fewer people than last time right. are going to get the stimulus checks based on how much money they earn. Right. And we've we've talked about this before tipped workers tipped workers do not make enough money per hour to actually collect unemployment. We just have to there's so many things that need to be fixed in the system. Um but to continue Republicans have delay tricks of course up their sleeves like they always do. Senator Russian Ron Johnson of Wisconsin has told colleagues he wants to Senate clerk to read the entire text of the bill, which would add hours to its consideration, which is interesting because it's you know, they drop hundreds of pages of bills like an hour before a vote normally and they're like, just vote on it. So Johnson or other GRP members would have to remain on the floor in order to stop Democrats from dispensing with the ordeal. That's actually interesting because they don't want to do that. Now, as what reading the bill would accomplish, Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming said, Senator Johnson will speak for himself on that. (laughs) No one wants to be associated with this asshole right now. Senator John Cornyn of Texas said that trying to talk Johnson out of it would probably not be successful because apparently no one knows his language. I think someone said he actually sounds like he's speaking from he's another planet. Mm. Senate Republicans are debating how painful to make these things for Democrats, possibly by dragging out the marathon of unlimited amendments overnight. That would likely happen late on Thursday and run into early Friday morning. This is a quote I'm hoping for infinity. 
This is Rand Paul, you douchebag. I'm hoping for infinity. There are people talking about trying to set up a schedule and having it go on and on and on. I'm more and more. I understand his neighbor. Paul said some in his party want to push the debate well past Thursday and keep adding amendments into Friday, while he has suggested to Schumer to spread the pain over two days. Senator Joni Ernst, this is a Republican from Iowa, as you know, predicted a cascade of GOP amendments meant to squeeze Democrats, including tweaks that would strip funding for purposes seen by Republicans as unrelated to the public health crisis, as well as, quote, sensible adjustments to the rest of the package. She went on to say, I'm thinking you're going to want to watch. Excuse me. She said, I think you're going to want to watch. I think it's going to be great. (laughs) Joni Ernst said it will be uh, great to watch them delay relief to American families. This is I just I can't with these people. They're sitting here in Congress with everything that they need and their health insurance and their money. And they're not, you know, even when they're on vacation and we have millions upon millions of Americans that are hurting just hurting. Get out of the fucking way and take care of your constituents. All of them. It's gross. So many, so many Americans want this passed, Republicans and Democrats alike. And the Republicans are like, we're just going to make it real hard for them. We're going to make them read the bill in its entirety. We're going to add a bunch of amendments that'll be meaningless. Ha ha ha. You're going to want to pull up a seat and watch this. It's going to be great while we fuck over Americans. They're so gross. They're so gross. Yeah, I hate them. In other news, Cuomo says he's not going to resign over his misconduct. He made a statement today. He apologized again and again and again. Um, uh, but he's not going to resign, he says. So that's what's happening with that. Uh, it's after the third uh, person came forward. Her name is pronounced Rook, by the way. Oh, we thought it was you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You and I both were like, is it Roosh? Uh, but it's Rook. Also in the news, the House Oversight Committee has reissued its subpoena to Mazars. So that's fun. And uh, let's see. Jim Jordan is in some hot water. He received 10 notices, count them 10, from the Federal Election Commission flagging discrepancies on its books, totaling nearly $3 million, dating back over two years. Good. The, the Jim Jordan campaign says those errors are just slipped through the cracks. Oh, yeah. We just turned a blind eye. Jim just turned a blind eye. Yeah, just, yeah to Jim doesn't. Does he turn blind eyes? I don't know mm. if that was a thing that he does. Now... Yeah, Greg Oliar said, maybe it's in the shower. Yes. <laughs> the, the, um, that's interesting. This could mean an FEC investigation. I would love it. And we'll go over that in more detail tomorrow as we get more information. I also need to check over the makeup of the FEC and the quorum and all that and where that's at. So uh, anyway, we'll be right back with the author of House of Trump, House of Putin, and the new book, American Compromise, Craig Unger. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am honored today to be joined by author Craig Unger, who has written and put out a new book called American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power and Treachery. Please welcome Craig Unger. Craig, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Great to be here. It's it's really great to speak to you, especially about uh, about this book. I know a lot of things uh, now with you know, the new now that the Democrats have the gavels in Congress, we may be seeing reopenings of investigations into Donald Trump's ties to Russia uh, after, of course, Bill Barr squashed the entire Mueller report uh, back in April of 2019. And I wanted to talk to you today uh, about this new book, American Compromise, because I think I, I th- it 
it needs to have a lot more attention um, because there's so much uh, incredible information in here, especially from your source from the KGB. And there's a really good timeline that that we can go through to discuss sort of the the contacts and the grooming of Donald Trump as an asset, a Russian asset, uh, going all the way back to the 70s. So before we get started with that, I want I want you to tell us a little bit about your first book and then what prompted you to write this this book as well. Well, the first book on Trump was called The House of Trump, House of, of Putin. And by and large, I traced his connections to the Russian mafia. I mean, as soon as Trump was elected, someone whispered in my ear, a word that I, I wish I'd never heard, which is Mogilevich, Simeon Mogilevich, <laughs> who, who's one of the great Russian mobsters. And uh, knowing that and, and hearing his name in concert with Trump, the first thing I did is I went to online databases, which revealed the uh, history of properties, all properties in the state of New York, including those owned by Donald Trump, such as Trump Tower, his the crown jewel of his empire, the one, the, the building that made him famous. And I went through the sales of every apartment there for the last 30 years. What was astonishing was a number of Russian mobsters that I found at least 13 Russian mobsters. And this was just in a few hours using online material. And I just don't believe in that many coincidences. No, and that's only New York, right? Because we have other uh, uh, property purchases from the Russian mafia in his Chicago Tower and, of course, all over Florida with Bayrock and others. Right. So and I so I love timelines. And I, and whenever I start work on a project like this or the new book, I start doing chronologies. And I think through them, you start to see causality. Uh, and what I saw with in this case with with House of Trump, House of Putin, was that starting in 1984, a man named Do David Bogdan, who was tied to uh, Simeon Mogilevich and part of the Russian mafia, walked into Trump Tower. He met with Donald Trump, and he put down six million dollars in cash and said, "I'd take five condos." And Trump, being Trump, doesn't say, "My God, where do you get that money?" <laughs> no, he takes the money and turns blind eye. And one thing you see in Donald Trump is this notion: there is a legal concept called um, uh, deliberate blindness or willful ignorance, uh, where you keep away from information that might make you vulnerable in some way. And Trump has practiced this religiously. In fact, if he has a religion, I think that's what it is. And it's enabled him to do enormous amounts of, of money laundering where he supposedly doesn't know uh, that the source of the money is ill-gotten. Uh, and he just turns a blind eye. But in, in, altogether, there were at least 1,300 condos that Trump owned that were sold under those circumstances, all cash through anonymous entities. Yeah, and I think that that is why Trump was so very concerned about the subpoena for the Mazar's materials and financial documents. I don't think that Cy Vance was necessarily after Trump's tax returns. I think more along the lines that Mazar's and lawyers and accountants for Mazar's may have told Trump uh, to limit Mazar's liability, that the things that he was doing, i.e. inflating the valuation of properties or deflating the valuation of properties, depending on who he was presenting those valuations to, were advised against uh, by Mazars, and and those documents would be in that tranche of, of materials that the Manhattan District Attorney has just gotten a hold of. And I know that the uh, 
that the Congress, the 117th Congress, has re-subpoenaed Mazars for that material as well. Now, I don't have any proof of that. That's just my my thought going forward, because that sort of documentation of letters advising against it would destroy the defense of plausible deniability, you know, where, where Trump always says, I don't get involved at that level. Uh, I just take the money and uh, my accountants and lawyers work that out. And so that I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see what Mazars turns up. But let's talk about this timeline in your new book, American Compromise, um, because I think it's absolutely fascinating. This goes all the way back to 1977. Can you tell us uh, about what happened, uh, his connections here in 1977? Right. Well, in 1977, Trump was just starting to develop what was his first, I think, genuine success. New York was at its nadir, so he was able to get this an option on this property for just one dollar. It was the old Commodore Hotel, now the Hyatt, uh, the Grand Hyatt Hotel, uh, right next to Grand Central Station. Fabulous location, uh, and Trump genuinely made millions and millions of dollars. His uh, tax abatements he got were criminal, but like every hotel, uh, it needed television sets. And I am sure there are reliable third-party vendors for Hyatt Hotels somewhere. But instead, Trump went to uh, um, an electronics store downtown that was owned by Soviet emigres. And even that sale had been reported before. What I found out for the first time is that the owner, uh, according to um, Yuri Svitz, who's a former member of the uh, officer in the KGB, that the owner himself uh, was uh, a spotter agent for the KGB. And in selling uh, Trump 200 TVs, he was essentially reaching out with, I've got an offer you can't refuse, really low price on the TV sets. But he was a spotter agent. He was opening the door for the KGB to approach Donald Trump as a potential asset and to start to cultivate it. No. And that's when it began. No, and even a little bit before that, when he married Ivana, right? That's sort of what popped everything up on the radar. Talk a little bit about Ivana. Right. Well, uh, Ivana was, uh, Czech. well, she is still Czech, I guess. <laughs> uh, she's still around. Um, and her family had lived near the, the one of the big STB offices. That's the, the Czech Secret Service. And they would uh, debrief her father, that's Donald Trump's father-in-law, uh, about Donald Trump starting in the 70s. And, of course, the uh, Czechoslovakia at that time uh, was part of the East Bloc, uh, and, and, uh, and they reported, so their secret police reported directly uh, to the KGB. And it, it's unclear exactly where the information went from there. Uh, sometimes they cooperated well with the 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 KGB sometimes not so well, uh, but that that is definitely one train in uh, of uh, in in which the uh, East Bloc was keeping an eye on Donald Trump very early on. Yeah, and then back to the TV guy who was kind of like the Russian crazy Eddie of New York, if you will. Um, your uh, source, Yuri Schwartz, says that as a result of of Kislin, Kislin, this spotter agent, as a result of his outreach to Trump, that standard protocols inserted Trump 
into KGB files as a potential asset who was a who was targeted to be cultivated. Talk a little bit about why Trump is a great target. It's just like like you go down the list of characteristics and and you get people like uh, Carter Page, uh, Donald Trump, Mike Flynn, like all of these folks kind of share the same sort of dossier, if you will, as to somebody who's going to be targeted to be an asset. Well, I, I did talk to Yuri Schwitz about exactly this question, and he almost burst into laughter. And he, he said, you know, Donald Trump is like a dream to recruit. He's the guy you've been looking for your entire life. He's not a complicated cookie. You want someone who's vain, who's narcissistic, who has a low IQ. This is Donald Trump. And it made it very easy. I mean, I, I think Americans have forgotten the Cold War. And that, I mean, it is, uh, I mean, it is going back more than 35 years. But as, as Trump was being cultivated in the early and mid 80s, the idea of uh, we, we were very much at a very adversarial relationship with, with the Soviet Union. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president. He said, tear down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. We had this uh, so-called Star Wars defense shield that was costing hundreds of billions of dollars and was uh, accelerating the arms race. And the idea that Soviet communists wanted a monument to American capitalism in Red Square. I mean, that, that's idiotic. It's insane. It's ludicrous. But Donald Trump fell for it because he was vain enough and he wanted it. Uh, he, he wanted to believe that was the case. Mm. Yeah. And in 1984, after uh, David, uh, is it Bogotan? Uh Your guess is as good as mine. I've been saying Bogotin, but... <laughs> but uh, I, uh, well, the Soviet emigre who laid down the today's equivalent of 15 million cash to buy five condos in Trump Tower, uh, you know, that happened in 84. And then also in that same year, Trump actually promoted himself as an expert on nuclear arms strategy in interviews with like the Post and the Times. And uh, your your source, Yuri, had said he would have had to have been briefed on those issues. There's no way Trump would be considered an expert on any of those things, right? Right. Trump went to uh, reporters at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and he said, I should be conducting the assault talks, the strategic arms limitation talks. I know so much about nuclear. And, uh, and that he knew all everything about foreign policy. Well, he didn't. Um, I mean, these were very much his playboy years. In 87, I think he, he met uh, Jeffrey Epstein for the first time. He went to parties where there were 28 girls and just two guys. So the idea is that he was studying up on nuclear weapons and all that was is kind of ludicrous. And uh, as Yuri tells the story, and Yuri was a, a major in the KGB. He was based in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Residenter, and he was uh, cultivating other American spies while his colleagues at the New York station were cultivating Donald Trump. So he was sort of parallel. He, he knew a lot of the people who were involved and what was going on. Yeah. And in 87, uh, he was actually invited, uh, sent a letter and invited to go to Moscow. Right. And, and again, uh, most of this is new, but the, the way the, the entire trip was structured, it was uh, created by the KGB. Um, uh, Yuri tells us, you know, that it was General Gromakov got the ambassador, the Soviet ambassador, to make a formal invitation to Donald Trump. The entire, all, all the um, uh, travel arrangements were booked by Intourist, which is a KGB operation. And once he got there, uh, 
what appears to have happened is he was pumped full of KGB talking points. And uh, I mean, we, we don't have much firsthand information on that. But as soon as he got back, uh, he appears to have been convinced by Russia to run for the president of the United States. Again, this is 1987. The 1988 election is just coming up with George H.W. Bush, then vice president, as presumptive nominee for the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, in fact, had an exploratory campaign for the nomination in in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, before the Republican primaries that year. And and that is, Yuri was still, while Trump started running for president, Yuri was still in in Moscow at KGB headquarters. And uh, he received a bulletin in September of 1987 that was an internal memo, and it was celebrating the acquisition of a new asset for the for the KGB, uh, a man who was in the process of exercising, uh, of implementing successful active measures, that is, disinformation operations, and attached to the uh, to the cable was was the evidence. And it was an ad that had been taken out in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Boston Globe by Donald J. Trump. And it had all these bizarre foreign policy t- talking points that you can't just imagine Donald Trump coming up with on his own. Uh, for example, the Soviets were, were having a, a real conflict with Japan at the time regarding two islands uh, that uh, are between the Soviet Union uh, and Japan. And for Donald Trump to take a position on this measure, I mean, it just was not a big issue in the United States at the time, but it was really important to the Soviets. And here you have Donald Trump saying, we've got to cut back on our friendship with our alliance with Japan. We should destroy NATO. Everyone in NATO is taking advantage of us. And in some ways, it's very much similar to the foreign policy, the very pro-Russian foreign policy that he executed as president. Yeah. And it it was the end of 1991 um, and going through to 2004 after the collapse of the Soviet Union that, you know, Trump, as you reported in House of Trump, House of Putin, there were a lot of major real estate deals with with Russians collaborating with Trump uh, on Soho, Toronto, et cetera. And then, you know, by the end of 2004, so that whole big chunk of time, he's now working on The Apprentice and and starting to make a, a whole lot of money. Right. And Trump had been pretty much wiped out financially after expanding into or overexpanding Atlantic City in the 90s. And before The Apprentice, these Russians, as you say, uh, with projects in Toronto and Soho and so forth, were coming in big time. And, and these were people who all had... Uh, ties to the KGB as well. And what you see is overall, and I think this is where I'm trying to rewrite history a bit, is everyone says, oh, we won the Cold War, we won the Cold War. And I say, wait just a minute now. Uh, The KGB was laying in wait there, and they came back to Donald Trump's rescue. They had taken uh, tens of billions of dollars as the Soviet Union was crumbling, and they poured them into commodity firms uh, one of which was named Sibico, uh, in Can- it was Russian and, and Canadian. And if you just look at that one company alone, there are four or five, four or five of the key principles were among those rich oligarchs and, and wealthy emigres who came to bail Donald Trump out in 2002 uh, through a company called Bayrock and, and also in Toronto that was Alex Snader, who was Boris Burstein's son-in-law. Yeah. 
Totally a coincidence, I'm sure. Uh, Craig, I have to, t- I'm kidding. I have to take a quick break. Uh, I want to come right back and I want to fast forward to 2016. Will you stay with me? Sure. All right, great. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking to Craig Unger, author of the book American Compromot, uh, and of course, the author of House of Trump, House of Putin. And uh, we were uh, going over the early timeline uh, from the late 70s up until 2004. And now I want to get into 2016 with the Mayflower Hotel. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I mean, we listeners of this show will be very familiar with uh, Dimitri Symes, the Mueller report and his his mentions there. Uh, And we've also talked about the Mayflower meeting, which had a lot to do with uh, KT McFarlane and Bud McFarlane, no relation, uh, and and Mike Flynn pushing this sort of Middle East Marshall plan and uh, Sessions was there. Just a very fascinating uh, moment. Talk about the Russian ties there. Right. Well, well, Dimitri Symes is a very interesting character. And there have been hints in the press about him being uh, so pro-Russian. But uh, in my conversations with Yuri Schwitz and with other people as well, uh, it seemed he was a little more than just a friend of the Russians. And Yuri Schwitz was telling me that, uh, uh, I, I forget the exact date, but Yuri had seen Dmitry Symes in Russia at, at an event with both Americans and and Russians, and he noticed that no one was talking to Dmitry Symes, and he went to his superior and said, look, the guy's so lonely, uh, no one will talk to him, not the Russians, not the Americans, maybe I should go after him and, and try to recruit him. And his, his um, superior came back to him a few hours later and said, no, don't bother, he's already one of us. In other words, he was already part of the KGB. And similarly, uh, General Oleg Kalugin, said uh, quite, uh, Kalugin has left the Soviet Union as well and, and lives in the Washington, D.C. area. And he said when he, uh, after he came to the United States, he also ran into Dmitry Symes at an event, and Symes looked at him, took one look at him and said, you traitor, a traitor for having left the KGB and the Soviet Union and come to the West. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so this was the introduction of Donald Trump's foreign policy. It was a very important event. And to have the seal of the KGB on it uh, is very revealing, I think. Uh, Yeah, quite. Uh, And then, of course, we know about the RNC's watering down of Ukraine policy uh, for the for the Republican platform. Uh, Dearborn and Mashburn, I think Manafort was in charge of that. And they made the call that they were going to weaken that language uh, in in the Republican platform. We talked uh, extensively about that. And you talk about it here extensively in your book. And, you know, in Cleveland, they reversed that, uh, you know, this longstanding Republican platform point uh, of, you know, of uh, protecting Ukraine. Uh, And so that was extremely telling. Absolutely. And I I mean, it's interesting now because I think, you know, Trump obviously is out of office, but this is not over yet. The Russians have not gone. And just look at the Republican Party. It reminds me of the party of regions in in Ukraine, which is, uh, you know, a party of Putin puppets, to use too many Ps uh, all at once. But um, you know, so you look at, uh, you know, it's worth looking into uh, people like Moscow, Mitch McConnell, and the fact that Kentucky ends up getting a, a coal mine that's uh, backed by Oleg Deripaska. 
you know, I think very few people realize that Deripaska, if you're working for Deripaska, you're working for Vladimir Putin. And, and when you look at the big giant law firms, and this is something I also write about, I'm talking about firms like Kirkland and Ellis, uh, and which has $4 billion in billings a year, uh, firms like Jones and Day, they have so many big time uh, Russian oligarchs as clients that are they, they, those lawyers are in effect, I would suggest, uh, highly paid intelligence operatives for Russia. Yeah. And you had mentioned to me in, in previous conversations before we spoke today, uh, I believe it was um, Yuri's understanding of, of what happened with Litvinenko uh, and and how that sort of ties into it. Well, well Yuri and uh, Litvinenko were sort of partners. They worked together and Yuri helped unravel, uh, un- dig up a lot of the information that Litvinenko presented and was so... Uh, toxic to uh, um, to Vladimir Putin and eventually proved even more toxic to uh, Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned with polonium. And then Yuri, once uh, after the Litvinenko assassination, Yuri became the key witness in the UK inquest into Litvinenko's death. And he fingered and named the, uh, the assassin. Uh, so I, I think he's been quite courageous in standing up uh, against Putin a lot. He he also gave testimony before the United States Congress in 1999 uh, on the dangers of all this money laundering, laundering of Russian money uh, coming in uh, after the end of the Soviet Union. And uh, unfortunately, very few people in America picked up on that. And if they had, we might not have had Donald Trump as president. Yeah. And then, of course, after he was elected, there's just a there's a laundry list of things that he did favors for Russia. Uh, But most striking, I think, or at least one of the most striking, besides ignoring the Russian bounties, was the withdrawal and the attempted withdrawal of troops from Syria. Um, The first, I I believe, Michael Bolton almost quit over. Um, At least that's some of what my my sources tell me. And then, of course, finally did withdraw from Syria Um, and. And that sort of stems a little bit or is connected to a speech Donald Trump Jr. gave uh, at the end of 2016, just before the election, right, where he was paid uh, quite a bit of money um, to speak at uh, in Paris. Right. Uh, and, and this is one of the fundamental things that I, th- I think where the reason why everything is so screwed up is that we need we desperately need a counterintelligence investigation, not just a criminal investigation. And when James Comey started investigating, it was um, it was mandated as counterintelligence. He was fired. Then it went to Robert Mueller, and it was still supposed to be a counterintelligence investigation. Uh, but you know what? That never really happened, or if it happened, it was buried somewhere, but no one has actually seen it. And there's a big difference between counterintelligence and criminal investigations, one of which is that uh, counterintelligence investigations are supposed to unravel threats to our national security. And oftentimes, those threats are done through intelligence operations, which are perfectly legal. And so we come to Donald Trump in October, uh, Donald Trump Jr. in October 2016, and he gives a speech, as you say, at a French think tank in Paris. He's paid over $50,000 for it. Well, 
All of that is completely legal. There's no problem with the law and all that. The problem is that the French think tank is really a Russian front. It's a front for Russian intelligence. So while he's giving that talk, he is being given the talking points uh, that Putin wants President Trump to implement once he becomes president uh, in the Middle East. And sure enough, uh, a little more than a year later, when Trump is president in 2017, he withdraws the troops from uh, Syria, he uh, abandons our Kurdish allies, and he leaves Russia in a stronger position uh, in Syria than before. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, the two big questions we're left with, aside from the counterintelligence investigation that you just pointed out, where is that, is also, you know, why hasn't Trump been stopped all these decades? I mean, they, the intel had to have been on to him. Uh, the the question then becomes, and this has been asked several times to several high-level officials, and I know you've talked about it too, once you have that information, who do you tell? And uh, no one can seem to answer that question. Right. I, I, it, no, it's, it's, I, I talked to one former CIA, and he said, I don't know. I don't know who to go to with all this. There's nothing you do with it. And I, and I think theoretically, in a, in a more perfect world, it would go to impeachment. But we all know what happened to impeachment, and, and the, the Republican Senate uh, ended up making impeachment basically very, very ineffective. Um, but I, I think it's all the more reason we need to get to the bottom of this. If we don't, it will happen again. And, you know, as I sometimes say, when a Boeing 737 crashes, you don't just say, oh, well, they're dead. We should move on. Yeah. <laughs> well, unless you're Calstrom, right? Maybe he would. Right. Um, so, you know, if we get don't get to the bottom of it, it will happen again. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to know what happened with that counterintelligence report. Who's who's who was actually charged with doing it? I know Mueller was, and then he had 40 counterintel agents. Well, all FBI agents, counterintel agents. I mean, they that's one of the many tools that they come at investigations in their tool chest with. Uh, but those 40 co-located agents, uh, who eventually was putting this together, uh, where it ended up. I know some of it came out in the Senate counterintelligence um the Senate Intelligence Counterintelligence Report, about a thousand pages. Uh, but, you know, if again, who who do you tell? What is the mechanism to stop someone like this from actually being able to run for president? And, and uh, hopefully we'll get to the bottom of that through congressional testimony and more exposure on issues like this. Uh, and that's why I'm so grateful that you've written this book. I think everyone needs to check it out. It's called American Compromise. Is there anything else you want to end on before we get out of here, Craig? No, well, it's simply that we really need that counterintelligence report. And, and that I think uh, this, the country is now in a mood where, where there's a lot of Trump fatigue. And believe me, I understand it well. But that doesn't mean we should just uh, forget uh, what's at the root of all of this. Well, it's kind of by design, isn't it? <laughs> they want us to forget about it. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope everyone checks out your book. It was uh, absolutely eye-opening. I appreciate your time. Craig Unger, thank you. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news? Everyone. Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. Nothing like listener submitted good news after like 25 minutes of talking, you know, Donald's a Russian asset, I have to say. So good. So good. 
So many uh, years. Oh, I can't believe how long they were grooming him. Yeah, it's it's yeah. You definitely want to pick up that book and and check it out, everybody, if you haven't. Um, and I thanks again to Craig for for being here today. Just so informative. I know that we said we were going to have his um, source Yuri uh, on the show today, but Yuri was under the weather, so that is why we had Craig by himself. I didn't want to put it off any longer, so. That is what we did. Now, if you have good news to submit, any of our games that we're playing, whatever you want to do, you check it out. You can do that over at, what, dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. So let's get into it, shall we? Let's read this first one here from Molly, pronouns she and her. Hi, Amazing Beans Queens. I wanted to follow up on yesterday's Antonin Scalia discussion with two related confessions. First, I was a rather ugly baby who bore an uncanny resemblance to Scalia himself. Pictures attached for proof. Second, I had the pleasure of hearing a Supreme Court argument several years ago involving the protection of endangered marine life. Long story short, Antonin Scalia kept repeating the phrase, squashing of aquatic life. Oh, my God. <laughs> but he made the aquatic rhyme with attic. Aquatic. Oh, oh I laughed so hard. I had to be escorted out of the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> I was in my 30s. It was worth it. Oh, goodness. <laughs> you were not an ugly baby, by the way. That's a cute Look at those baby. lips. Molly. That's a cute baby. I'm sorry. I mean, you're definitely that furrowed brow. You look concerned about the years ahead, but <laughs> as you should. You are, as you, as should. you should. Yeah, super cute. Thank you so much for that submission. This next one's from John from Jersey. No pronouns given. Hi, pod pet stories have not enough represented rodents. During COVID, we got two baby rats. We named them Sweetie and Big Blanky. They're brothers from the same litter, and my two boys have fallen in love with them. They snuggle together in their cage. There's much less fraternal fighting now. Um, all I have to say is, why can't you be more like your rats? <laughs> Hilarious. And then they get immediately along. Most amazing is that my Bronx-born wife has become smitten with them. They're very friendly and lovable. Sadly, we have learned about rodent bias. Mm, as when I bring them into my my, my work Zoom meeting, people react in horror. We think it's the tail. I have tried to explain how wonderful they are so far without success, but I keep trying. A chapter photos of the snuggly rats, my rat kid bros, and my wife with rats, rats in the hood. That's funny. R-A-T-Z, rats in the hood. Look at the baby. Oh my God. Look at them snuggling. Rats are adorable. Aww. I had a rat named Maleficent when I was in high school. Ugh. Okay, listen. The tail is a little bit unsettling. I'm not going to lie. That if, if it's someone has a problem, it is the tail because the rats themselves are quite adorable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. I would agree it's the tail. I think so, too. Next up, anonymous pronouns he and him, AGM peeps. I listen to the Daily Beans each morning, and now I'm enjoying Clean Up on Aisle 45 as well. The misheard song lyrics bit you've been doing lately triggered a memory of a conversation I had with my wife last year when she asked me what lyrics were what the lyrics were for the Grease dance-off scene. Growing up in a family that loves musicals, I've watched this movie dozens of times and in this scene because everyone does a dance at the end, including flipping their thumbs out past their shoulders. I always thought the lyrics were, Born to hitchhike baby. <laughs> My wife immediately knew this could not be right <laughs> and had a fantastic laugh at my expense and still pokes me about it. It's amazing how things can sometimes seem right in your brain if you don't realize how off it is until it's spoken out loud. After 35 years, I finally learned the song is called Born to Hand Jive instead of Hitchhike, yes. 
Uh, anyways, love your various projects, co-host, guests, all the information and messages you put out. I'm a patron supporter for you and other independent journalists and podcasts who are breaking and discussing so much more than on the normal news. Uh, included is a pet tax, a photo of our dog, Beezy, after one of her smell the grass, roll around in it and flail her legs in the air sessions that she loves doing. <laughs> Take care. And thanks for all you do. Oh, I love when dogs do this. Cute. I know me too. I love when they do that. Nice. Anonymous, thank you so much for that submission. Next one's from Philip, pronouns he and him. Hi, Beans Queens. AG requested a follow-up with any more Christian parody songs that I didn't realize were parodies at first, and here is one, followed by two more recent ones I knew were parodies. Now, the first one, I have never heard Four Non Blondes' What's Up, and I didn't know about the song until roommate in my doctoral program asked me why I was singing the wrong lyrics. I had always heard, hey, 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 hey. Hey, 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 I said, hey, my sin my is sin gone. Is gone. <laughs> and, and I, I say, hey, hey, yeah, 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 and try. Okay. <laughs> um, so the second one, I know you saved me, rips off, call me baby. <gasps> call me maybe. I get oh, it. Babe, call me maybe. Yep. That is really oh, funny. The third one, baby got book. Rips off Baby Got Back. And yes, it does have the lyrics. I like big Bibles and I cannot lie. You other Christian brothers can't deny. That one's tough. I think people need to work <laughs> when on When a it. book walks in with the nitty bitty waist Robe. and a round thing in your... Uh, Face, you get saved. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> baby if, Got Book. Baby Got Book. If you... <laughs> All right. If you ever get bored and want more Christian parodies and ripoffs of famous brands, uh, Bible Apology. Bible Apology. Bible Apology. Bible Apology. Apology. Bible Apology. My God. T shirts that say Got Jesus or (laughs) Dragon Raid instead of Dungeons and Dragons, etc. I definitely recommend the self-Andrews talk, quote, The Copycats. It's a former Christian radio host and has a hilarious talk about the copycat Christian industry of everything in popular culture. Oh. Thanks for laughing with me, not at me, not at me, like some might do. And I can't wait to he- hear AG tell us all when her parents get the second shot. I will tell you, and this is so great. Okay, Baby Got Book is my favorite. Yeah. I got to go listen to that. I got to see what that whole, because there's a lot. Yeah. In that song that you're going to have to change. All right. Oh, yeah. Next up from Pat, pronoun she and her. This is my rescue pilot. I had his DNA tested. What do you think he's made of? Can't wait to hear what the bean casters guessed. I know his breeds from the DNA test. All right, pilot. This is German Shepherd. Um, he's squirrel. There's definitely um, a groundhog in there. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the first dog is hitting. Okay. Um, definitely German Shepherd. I still think there's Beagle in there on that body. I think German Shepherd, um, probably Staffordshire Terrier. Definitely Bull Terrier. <laughs> Staffordshire <laughs> Terrier. Uh, definitely German Shepherd. And then what is Brindle like that? And Pointer. I'm going with Pointer because of that tail. Ridgeback. I'm going to go Ridgeback. Ooh, probably right. Oh, there's one picture. Oh, the baby. American Bulldog Pitbull. American English Foxhound. That's close to a beagle. Oh, wow, you shot on. Yeah, you shot out. Okay, traces of Sharpay. Huh. Really? I love that there's trace amounts like a Sharpay just walked by while they were having sex. <laughs> yeah, like just rubbed up against him. Just like Sniffed rubbed up butt. against the bulldog like, get it. Get it. Okay. Uh, no German Shepherd in this dog. Wow. I'm shocked. I know. All right. Thank you so much for that submission. The next one's from Ellie. Pronouns she and her misheard lyrics. Oh, wait. 
Did I do the last one? I can't remember anymore. Nope, I did. Okay. Good. All right. Misheard lyrics. Here we go. So in the 70s, my grandmother chaperoned a youth group trip. Not sure why the youth group was going to Ted Nugent concert, but apparently someone thought that was a good idea. So after the concert, my uncle hears my grandma humming and singing along going, catch that speeder, I don't know Ted Nugent, so catch that speeder, da-na-na-na-na-na. Oh, catch that speeder. What a nice young man. It's Cat Scratch Fever. Thank you. I know Cat Scratch Fever. You're so much better at this game. Um, Catch That Speeder. That's hilarious. My uncle was mortified still to this day. She will sing it at Catch That Speeder. It's hilarious to hear her sing it, too. Uh, She has been told the correct lyrics, but insists she likes hers better. There you go. Sometimes what we come up with is better than what is real. Now... Next up from Jay, pronouns he and him. The good news. My mother-in-law gets her first dose of the vaccine Friday. This is a huge relief for my wife and I. Now, under the misheard lyrics, am I the only one? For years, the song September by Earth, Wind, and Fire, I thought they were saying, Oreo say, do you remember? Oreo dancing in September. Ah, Oreo say, do you remember? Oreo dancing in September. Oreo never was never a cloudy, was a cloudy day. day. That's when hilarious. I started venturing into lyric websites in the 90s, I discovered it was not Oreo, just body ah, say, do you remember? Thank you for you lovely ladies. For all you do, you help make my first hours at work more bearable. For Pod Pet Tax, I've included a photo of my mother-in-law's cat, Stormy. Oh, Stormy. My oh. goodness. I don't even know what's happening there. <gasps> that's a happy kitty. That's happy like, kitty. I think that's finishing a yawn, I think is what's oh, happening so, there. Oh, so, so sweet. <laughs> that, that picture. My goodness. Okay. Thank you so much for that story. We do like our we do like our misheard lyrics. This next one comes from Mary, pronouns she and her. In the vein of misheard lyrics or long-time misunderstandings, I wanted to submit to you a story of when I was a young child and just learning to read. I was driving with my parents and showing off my skills by reading all the signs we passed. Stop. Wrong way. No parking. Etc. I was doing a good job until I came upon a sign that was giving me a bit of trouble. Undeterred and determined, I started to read it, trying to sound it out and think of words I already knew that might fit the bill, and I shouted out, sure as I've gotten it right, yield to uh, Presbyterians. (laughs) (laughs) Yield to Presbyterians. Suffice to say, this wasn't a special, this wasn't a special crosswalk just for Presbyterians. Uh, But for any sort of pedestrian, my parents never let me live this error down and still bring it up to this day. As pet tax, I submitted to you my three pups, Bagel, Biscuit, and the newest edition, Puppy Brioche. That is hilarious. Bagel and Brioche breed is a little obvious, but Biscuit is a mix, although I'm thinking you'll have no trouble guessing at least one of his only two breeds. Well, obviously... Yes, we know that there is healer in there, or as what you say, Australian cattle dog. Yeah, cattle dog and Rottweiler. Yeah, I go in with Rot on that one, too. Uh, oh, my God, so cute, though. Blue tick coonhound, not Rottweiler. It's a, it's a blue healer and a blue tick oh, coonhound. interesting. What a beauty. Indeed. So much fun. Definitely got the healer in there. Look at these baby beagles. Mom. I love the baby beagles, though. They're so, They're so cute. cute. Great names, too. Brioche, Biscuit, and Bagel. <laughs> my goodness. Ah, well, thank you all so much. And um, uh, this has just been uh, a great series of submissions. If you have any misheard lyrics or dog breeds you want us to, you want us to guess anything. And, you know, tomorrow's Friday. So we have Amy's court. If you have a dispute that needs to be settled, we'll be happy to do that for you. For sure. Um, 
any any of the any last uh, any last thoughts before we head into the weekend, Dana? No, I am looking forward to it. Actually, I have nothing. I have nothing more to say other than I hope you'll join us tonight on the the um what, what the hell is it called? Stereo app. That's it. The stereo <laughs> and I, app. Obviously, I need a a little bit of a break, so I'm not going to be driving after this time. So I will imbibe with you, my friend. I will indeed. Cool, because you're not a a presidential physician on call 24-7. So. Correct. Mm-mm-mm. And you keep your thoughts in your inside your head. <laughs> I do. I do. I definitely appreciate people, but no one else has to know it. Yeah. Come on, Ronnie. Come on, Candyman. And I don't even think he deserves the nickname Candyman. No. Anyway. Everybody, we will talk tomorrow. Amy Carrera will be here. We've got a lot of fun stuff. Uh, so we'll see you then. Until then, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. And take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the bean. Refried bean. I like refried beans. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.